New Century, The Christmas Thieves, by Alexander Shaw and Charles Dickens. Stave 1, Part 1, Ambrosius Baltus. Marlowe was dead, to begin with. Dead as a doornail. Mind you, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge what that is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. But the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or else the country, and indeed the multiverse, is done for. You will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that Marlowe was as dead as a doornail. Greetings, and the fairest of the seasons to you all. My name is Merlane. I am a wizard, and I shall be your guide through territories both familiar and new. Mostly familiar, my equestrian companion drawled. And far too cold for my tastes. You are lucky I'm being well fed on this escapade, or you'd find yourself pulling your own cart. Hold your tongue, you irascible, behooved nitwit. You pollute these sanctified proceedings with your colloquial fripperies. I'm here to add the human touch. A supreme irony. I know. Peel me some chestnuts while you're narrating. Hmm. What follows is a series of extraordinary events that took place upon the streets and within the houses of London Town in the year of 1882. Queen Victoria is gone, and her last granddaughter roams Buckingham Palace, awaiting the throne, which will usher in the Gwendolenian Age. This leaves us now in the period between, named for her adoptive Duarte father and regent, the Coralanian Age. Rounding that corner there, you will see a man appointed to his station by Archduke Coriolanus himself, the captain of the watch. A Mr. Ambrosius Baltus, a finely armoured, intimidatingly bearded, thoroughly miserable chap. Your chestnuts, O oh illustrious nag. Thank you. Baltus has been stomping through the snow-blanketed streets this Christmas Eve, in even worse spirits than usual. What plagued this man was not tight-fistedness, though this Duarte was mean with money. That was not the vice which gripped his heart. No, Ambrosius Baltus was angry, and he did not spare redirecting that anger unto others. We have been watching him for two days now, following him about often assisted by magical invisibility spells as we conduct our espionage and gather information on this doleful, wrathful old sinner. Secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster, he has, of course, much in common with Ebenezer Scrooge, from my favourite work of one of your human authors, Charles Dickens. It was while we stealthily stalked this captain that a plot began to hatch in my mind, given form by that most splendid of Christmas stories. He means he nicked the concept wholesale. Not so, you cynical bastard. I have examined this Duarte's life and found the similarities, laying them over the framework of this tale, in the hope that we might do some good this season and sow the seeds of a verdant spring to come. 
And luckily for us, we have found one particularly juicy piece of information that might just allow this noble, if far-fetched, plan to come to fruition. For you see... Captain Baltus doesn't like to read. Beyond that, he despises human literature, preferring instead to watch Duat Opera, the epic kind with a grand armored hero rescuing a busty female from a fiery drake. And then they sing. A lot. Which means he is almost certain to be entirely unfamiliar with the novella published 39 years ago in 1843. Many Christmases before this world fell to a dark plague and the great doorway opened north of London to S to Kelador, the world of the stout, power-mongering Duart species and the enormous green-skinned Akka who came with them. This late afternoon you will find us outside Captain Baltus's guardhouse, located a stone's throw away from the Tower of London. A dread citadel sat beside the chilly, flowing, dark waters of the River Thames, a frost-bound ancient stone coffer filled to capacity with those arrested for crimes against the two realms. Can we just peek in the window this time? It is so awkward rearranging myself inside their rooms. We are going in, Nag. You shall just have to accommodate your capacious frame. As Captain Baltus slams open the sturdy door, we whisk in behind him and watch quietly from our shadow in the corner as events proceed. The room is spartan, whitewashed walls, black writing desk behind which sits Mr. Ian Cartwright, a human and an under-administrator with clerical duties at the tower. Cartwright is clad in a threadbare woolen coat with fingerless gloves, which he's currently blowing on to breathe some life into his stiffened digits. Baltus, spotting this, irritably crosses to the small wrought iron furnace, places a single additional piece of coal upon the dying embers, and gives it a quick blast from his fire casting. The coal is bathed in orange flames and begins to smoke as the fire is rekindled. Baltus removed his helmet, adorned with a centurion-like black brush of a plume. Underneath was a long, dark strip of hair arranged in a mohican. He ran his gauntlet through this, grimacing at the touch of cold, flame-proof karenite metal, and clanked over to his own desk in the adjoining room. Arranging papers laid down there neatly by Cartwright some hours earlier. His flinty eyes ran over the release schedule for various prisoners of the tower who were reaching the end of their sentence. This annoyed Baltus. The thought of turning undesirables back out into the world to commit further crimes. It felt... disordered. He was not a believer that when a man has served his time, he should be afforded a measure of mercy and trust. This was a chamber originally built for humans, by humans. But as with many of the domiciles and business premises appropriated by your new ruling class, it has undergone an overhaul to accommodate the shorter stature of the Duart people, including a remodeled doorway. It was through this five and a half foot aperture that a jolly young Duart female came bursting, quite making Baltus jump in fright. A Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you, cried the apple-cheeked young lady. It was Baltus's niece, and she was every bit as abundant with joy and festive cheer as her uncle was bereft of it. Bah! Humbug! Christmas a humbug, Uncle? 
You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do, said Baltus. For one, those in London are celebrating the winter solstice just as we have in ages past. The human Christians call it Christmas, though. And there is so much about their celebrations that match up with ours. I thought it right to go along with their name for it. When in London, after all. But that is beside the point. I have not celebrated winter solstice this many a year, and I see no reason to start now with this foreign mutation of our values. Because point two... What right have you, Freda, to be merry? You're poor enough. What right have you to be so dismal? You're rich enough. Freda was not giving in, and had a wit to match her warmth. It is the coldest time of the year. And yet rather than pressing on to work and achieving more with their time, this city is enchanted by hanging baubles upon trees, playing games like children, and... and... Singing. I suppose if it were a Christmas opera with some kind of monster to be slain, you might join in. Never. If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. You keep Christmas in your own way, niece, and let me keep it in mine. Keep it? But you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone, then. Much good may it do you. What good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good, by which I have not profited, I dare say. But I am sure I have always thought of the winter solstice as a good time. A kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time in the long human calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely. And to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave. And not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. But we are another race of creatures. Bound on similar journeys. And therefore, Uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good, and will do me good. And I say God bless it. At this, Ian involuntarily applauded. Then becoming immediately sensible of the impropriety, he poked at the fire, his face lowered in fear. Let me hear another sound from you, Cartwright, and you'll keep Christmas by losing your situation. He turned back to his niece. A quite a powerful speaker, young lady. Were the whole thing not dissolved from the disarray we found it in, and were it not profoundly absurd for a woman to be in any state of elected political power, I should advise you to go into Parliament. Don't be angry, Uncle. I didn't come here to quarrel. Come, dine with us tomorrow. No. Baltus was implacable, his position intractable. But why? Why did you get married? One might almost think he was changing the subject. But as my horsey friend and I watched him, we saw the threads form between question and response. Because I fell in love, was her reply. The words earnest and genuine, with no intent to impress, deflect, or exaggerate. This was the truth. Because you fell in love. That is the only thing in this world or the other more ridiculous than a Merry Christmas. Good afternoon. Before Freda could leave, however, two gentlemen entered the establishment. One was clearly a Duarte, clad in a bottle green coat, bearing a bushy grey handlebar moustache over what might have been a blonde one. The other was so huge that he practically filled the room. He also wore an identical grey horseshoe of a moustache, 
Have I the pleasure of addressing Captain Baltus? You may take such pleasure as you wish, though I care not to grant it. What? Yes, I am Captain Baltus. Splendid. At this festive season of the year, Mr. Baltus, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessities. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts, sir. Are these impoverished of Dwart stock like yourself? Or are they Arca, like your associate here? We speak of a mix of the portion of humans that occupy the lowest rung of our society, and those Aka unable to get even the manual labour jobs that are mainly afforded to the strongest few of them. But no Dwart. Since those who occupy the gentry and upper echelons are all Duarte, there are few that require provision from our concern. In other words, no. So I am to provide for those themselves unable to provide anything of value to our society out of... What is it you call this? Uh, charity, sir. Charity? I believe you have found a new terminology for foolhardiness. We are only looking for a little way forward for those who are trapped. Those without a meal, without roof or walls. Those not afforded the privileges you and I enjoy. There is a tall building not one minute's walk from these premises, sir. Poke your head outside and you cannot miss it. If these unwashed miscreants are in want of a home, they need only steal bread to find themselves within its comforting walls. Short of that, the Union workhouses are, I believe, in flourishing business. You gotta be kidding me. Shh. Under the impression that prison and indentured servitude scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body to the multitude, the little one pressed, pulling out a pen, a few of us are endeavouring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We choose this time because it is a time of all others when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. So what shall I put you down for? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone. I don't make merry myself at Christmas. He doesn't. And I can't afford to make idle people merry. He can. I am partly responsible for the running of the Great Tower over yonder. It takes enough out of me on a daily basis. And those who are badly off must go there, or else to the workhouses. Many can't go there. And many would rather die. Then they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Told you it was a dry well. Then since nothing can impress upon you the gravity of this shared plight, I must bid you good day, sir. Good. Be off with you. Wait, before you go. I was going to buy a medium-sized pudding for our dinner tomorrow, but since it looks like we will have one fewer guest, though he is welcome all the same, I shall buy a small one, and you may have the balance. Oh, no, you keep this. Please, have a Merry Christmas. I will be merrier knowing someone else has smiled for my actions. Keep it. The young lady was resolute. She glanced back at Baltus. Still inspiring nothing. Good afternoon. We will set a puddingless place for you all the same. Good afternoon. Freda and the two gentlemen left through the door, the larger of the pair practically upon his knees. The captain glared after them. He was filled with disgust that a greenskin had stood in his presence and far from being quiet and contrite, had deigned to be complicit in asking him for money and assistance. It quite chilled the blood in his veins. He stewed upon this thought for some time 
until five bells chimed, and he glanced sharply over at Ian in his little room. I shall see you tomorrow, the same time as usual, Cartwright. The man spoke for the first time that day, since a small and uneventful visit from the coal merchant, to obtain this week's meagre bucket. Oh, uh, sir, said Ian, I was wondering if I might at least have the morning off. Those men and women hanging from chains on the walls over the way, will they be taking the morning off? I'll make sure they get fed, sir, but I mean, the administration is going to be minimal tomorrow. You, you won't really need me, and I do so want to be with my family this year, just for a few hours. We have a little one who might not ma- I will be in, bright and early. I cannot abide work-shy langering. You will be here at the same time, or I shall find another human, who does not mind being away from whatever family he has, to take your place before Boxing Day is over. Yes, sir. I will be here. Ian bowed his head and departed off towards his little house in Camden Town. That was Stave 1, Part 1 of The Christmas Thieves. Ambrosius Baltus and the Nag, performed by Spencer Lieb. Merlane, the short gentleman, and Ian, performed by Alexander Shaw. Freda, performed by Theo Lee. The Big Gentleman, performed by Matt Wardle. Overture, specially composed for The Christmas Thieves by Gilhaim Steinberg. Warmth of Winter by Ross Bugden. Soft Mischief and Look Behind You by Our Music Box. All other music arranged by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Many soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. All artwork by Antonio Torresan. Many thanks to our top-tier Patreon sponsors for the month of this re-release. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skeels Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. Thank you.